So we've got two scriptures this morning. The first one is John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. If you could stand for the reading of God's word. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And now I'm going to turn to John 19, verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The word of the Lord. What a contrast. Just days apart. What a contrast. Jeannie Smith, an American historian, authored a book entitled When the Cheering Stopped. The book told of Woodrow Wilson and the events surrounding World War I. Upon the end of the the war, people were optimistic. They believed that the, the last war had been fought. The dream was that the world had at last been made safe and the way had been paved for democracy and freedom everywhere. When Woodrow Wilson paid his first visit to Europe, he was greeted by large crowds and he was cheered every place he went. In many people's eyes, he was more popular than the greatest war heroes throughout the land. He was viewed as an icon of hope. In all, the cheering lasted for about a year. Then it began to stop. The political leaders throughout Europe were interested more in their own agendas than in lasting peace. And the people slowly lost hope. On the home front, Wilson met opposition in the Senate and his League of Nations was never ratified. Under tremendous stress, his health began to fail. In the next election, his party lost. Woodrow Wilson who almost two years earlier was heralded as a hero, came to his last days as a broken and defeated man. In these scripture passages that were read for us today, we see an example of someone who was cheered and then rejected by the same ones who had cheered him. Jesus, the son of a carpenter, raised in Nazareth, who had gained favor with the people, 
who is cheered and praised would soon be mocked, scorned, and cast aside by the same ones who had done the cheering. See, the, at this point, the Romans found themselves under, excuse me, the Jews found themselves under Roman oppression. There were heavy taxes, all kinds of restrictions, numerous executions by means of crucifixion, and maybe most disturbing to them, they were being ruled by pagan Gentiles. Someone has written, the Jews were in search of someone. They desired a king, a conqueror, someone to set them free. They had seen the mighty works of this man, Jesus. They were witness to him restoring sight to the blind. They had seen the evidence of him healing the lame. They saw him feed the multitudes with a little boy's lunch and had leftovers to spare. They heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. They listened to him teach with authority. Surely, with power and authority like that, Jesus would without a doubt be the one who would set them free. So, Jesus came to Jerusalem and the crowds began to cheer. The timing seemed right. It was approaching the Passover, Passover feast, the great festival that celebrated the event where the death angel had passed over Egypt and Pharaoh let God's people go. And now, just maybe, Jesus would somehow lead them from the restraints and cruel treatment they received from their Roman occupiers. In Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, it says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went... Ahead, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Well, the Russians... Russians. <laughs> the Roman soldiers knew it was Passover as well. They understood that historically it could be a time that brought about skirmishes and violent clashes. They had not forgotten that several years earlier, Theodos of Jordan had ridden into Jerusalem with a similar greeting. They remembered how he promised to do the miracles of Elijah and how he had led a small revolt. Theodos, along with 400 of his followers were slain, and the head of Theodos was hung on the garrison wall. They knew Passover could bring trouble, and so they were ready. Jesus then rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Kings at that time and culture rode horses when they went to war or when they returned as conquering heroes. When a king came in peace, he rode on a donkey. In this case, Jesus rode on the foal of a donkey, a beast that had never before been ridden. Perhaps to say that Jesus now came on a one-time mission of peace that had never before been attempted and would never be attempted again. So as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowd waved palm branches, a long-standing symbol of Jewish nationalism. They shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Cheering, praising, exalting. 
But then, just days later, the cheering stopped. And the events of the crucifixion that would take place indicates that Jesus and the crowds who hailed him during the triumphal entry had two different visions. In this song, Ride On to Die, Michael Card writes of Christ's journey to the cross, Sense the sorrow untold as you look down the road at the clamoring crowd drawing near. Feel the heat of the day as you look down the way. Hear the shouts of Hosanna the King. O daughter of Zion, your time's drawing near. Don't forsake him. O don't pass it by. On the foal of a donkey, as the prophet had said, passing by you, he rides on to die. Soon the thorn-cursed ground will bring forth a crown, and this Jesus will seem to be beaten, but he'll conquer alone both the shroud and the stone, and the prophecies will be completed. O daughter of Zion, your time's drawing near. Don't forsake him. O don't pass it by on the foal of a donkey. As the prophet had said, passing by you, he rides on to die. So just a few days after the triumphal entry, the crowds that had cheered Jesus turned against him and called for him to be crucified. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus set siege against Jerusalem because the people finally did revolt. The people did it their way. They went according to their purpose. They acted upon their terms, and it brought about judgment. According to the historian Josephus, over a million Jews were killed. He recorded that the blood flowed down the steps leading to the temple just like water. The temple was destroyed. The crowds that cheered during the triumphal entry had the wrong vision of Jesus And in some ways, people still cheer Jesus today, but they have the wrong vision of who he is. And to correct those wrong visions or ideas or perspectives or whatever you want to call them, we turn to the authority of Scripture. And we know that some see Jesus as they want him to be. Others deny him for who he really is. So... What are some of those visions? Well, first, people see Jesus as a permissive parent. You know, in some household, there are rules and standards set and expectations that the children of the family will abide by those rules and live up to those standards. In other families, there is lip service may be given to rules and standards, but no real expectations that those things will be lived up to. Children get a pass when the rules are broken or when they behave below the level of the standards that are expected by a family. Because after all, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, we just want our kids to be happy. There are people who view Jesus that way. He has this set of high-sounding rules and expectations. The Bible calls them laws and precepts and commands that he expects us to live up to, but not really. Hey, that's setting the bar too high. You can't really expect people to live up to all those rules. So when we break them, we expect Jesus to kind of wink at it. 
It's not that big a deal. Just give us a pass. His commands are not hard, fast rules. They're more like suggestions that you can take or leave. After all, Jesus just wants us to be happy. If I were to boil down the key factors in a relationship with Jesus, it would be these. Faith and obedience. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse 26, the Apostle Paul speaks to this when he writes of the obedience that comes from faith. Throughout the Old Testament and the New, obedience is expected. God expects He calls for obedience. There's no fudging. There are no passes. There there is no just this once. Obedience in a relationship with Jesus is more than important. It's essential. Jeremiah 7.23 But I have given them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. From the New Testament, Matthew 28.20, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. John 14:15 If you love me keep my commands keep some of my commands keep the commands you like and ignore the rest No if you love me keep my commands And then in John 14:23 Jesus replied anyone who loves me will obey my teaching A relationship with Jesus requires our obedience to all that He has commanded. He is not a permissive parent. And then the second, another view, and I'm sure there are a lot more than this, but here's another way people view Jesus. They see Jesus as a cosmic waiter, server. Jesus is supposed to wait on us. He's supposed to come at our beck and call. When I want something, when I need something, when I'm in a bind, I just shout, Hey, Jesus! And He comes running to see what I need. But that's as far as it goes. See, like a waiter, I want His attention when I need something. But otherwise, Jesus, don't call me. I'll call you. Stay out of my life. Don't bother me. Don't cramp my style or put any demands or requirements on me. You're here to serve, and I'll call you if I need you. Beyond that, keep your nose out of my business. That's how some people view Jesus. The Scripture tells us, this is Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. What he say to the servant when he comes in from the field? Come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, 
you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Hebrews 9.14 Much more than will the blood of Jesus Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts, acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. <laughs> who's the servant and who's the master here? You know, it's always um, impressed me that in our world, and hopefully not in the church, but in our world, God gets a lot of credit for bad stuff that happens. Have you noticed that? How could a loving God fill in the blank? God gets a lot of credit for bad stuff, but the good stuff? It's because I work so hard. It's because I'm so talented. Because I'm lucky. Because I'm just that good. We want God to be our servant, don't we? Certainly, Jesus served when He walked on this earth. In, in, in truth, that's why some people were attracted to Him. They followed Him for a while. I mean, they liked it. They liked it that Jesus healed Him. They liked it that Jesus fed them. He even washed feet. But He did those things as an example to us. We are to be servants. We are to serve others. And in so doing, we serve Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 40. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. We don't expect Jesus to serve us. Rather, we look for ways to serve Jesus. And all the people said... <laughs> And then, people see Jesus as a good example, but not as sinless. That, that statement is really the gist of it. The, the perspective of some is that Jesus lived a good life. He was kind. He did good things. He loved people. But He was not sinless. He gave in to temptation. He fell at some point. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, was tempted in every way as we are, and yet was without sin. And those temptations, those struggles that Jesus faced, they were real. The temptations to sin that Jesus faced were not trite or fake or trivial. To proclaim that Jesus did not struggle with temptation is to strip Jesus of His humanity. A humanity the Bible resoundingly proclaims. And Jesus was sinless. In fact, that's what qualified Him to be our Savior. Remember, um, in my prayer this morning, I'm in reference to the multitude of sacrifices that the Jewish people had to make. Morning and night, day after day after day, and, and just... So they understood the gravity of sin. God said, listen, not any, you can't go out and pick the bummer lamb. You can't, you can't go out and, 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 you know, and 
pick the bull that has a sore limps around. You can't do that. Listen, what you have to do to bring a sacrifice is choose the very best from the flock or herd. Unblemished. And so there, that, that process over and over again. But it's pointing to the fact, this idea of the unblemished, the very is pointing to who Jesus would be. What the spotless Lamb of God. No sin was found in Him. And because of that, He was qualified to be the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice. The Bible proclaims that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And again, in the Old Testament, there were the, the countless bulls and goats and lambs that were offered to God and only the most perfect animals were to be brought. All of these animal sacrifices of the most perfect animals pointed forward to Jesus. For in and of themselves, the blood of animals was not good enough for the forgiveness of sins. But again, those things pointed forward to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, identified by John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Aren't you glad for Jesus? Aren't you glad that you didn't have to lead a calf by a halter or bring a lamb in your arms today? You know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to degrade anything that the Old Testament priests did, but I've said often to Julie, they were glorified butchers. Can you imagine what they had to do day after day and the sprinkling or spilling of blood on the altar and... And Jesus took care of that for us. <laughs> mm. Listen, if Jesus were a sinner like us, He Himself would have needed a Savior for His sins. But He wasn't and isn't a sinner. Jesus was and is sinless and qualified to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. And the Bible teaches that when he went to the cross, dying as a sacrifice for our sins, he hung there, taking upon himself our sins, for he had none of his own. He acted as our substitute and took upon himself the wrath of God for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, and adopted as his sons and daughters. Second Corinthians 521. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter two twenty two. Again speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews chapter four. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was, has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Amen. First John 3, verse 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Jesus, 
the perfect sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus was sinless. And then, people see Jesus as a good teacher, but not as truth. Winston Churchill said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if, as if nothing happened. You know, some people like to lump Jesus in with uh, Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or even someone like the Dalai Lama. He was a good teacher. He had some good things to say, but they weren't truth. Many people are skeptical about Christ's claims to be the truth. It makes them unhappy that someone would claim to have a corner on the truth. That they are right and others are wrong. But there is absolute truth. And His name is Jesus Christ. And in our culture, truth has been becomes something that is relative. Uh, people say there is no such thing as absolute truth. There is no such thing really as right and wrong because what's right for you is not right for me and what's wrong for you is not wrong for me. And I've never known how you figured that out. I think it's kind of confusing, but that's some, some of the thinking that's out there. You know, everything is right in its own way or shape or form. If one of your friends believes that something is true, culture says that you're not allowed to disagree with them. Or if it's true for you, it must be true for you. But not for me. Or I don't know. No wonder people are confused. And this is especially true when it comes to things like the discussion of religion. Culture would say that Truth about God and religion is only what each individual in each individual decides it is. I'll decide what's true about God or religion or Well Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which flies in the face of the you know, there are truths found in many religions, so there are many ways to heaven. Jesus didn't agree with that. In John 18, verse 37, Jesus said, And I came to bring truth to the world. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes. Jesus is the truth. And then, people see Jesus as a good man, but not as God. No, no, no. C.S. Lewis, you're going to hear from him a few times in this section. C.S. Lewis said that because of Jesus' claims to be God, that he could only be viewed one of three ways. As a liar, as a lunatic, or as Lord. And so, if Jesus said he was God and he wasn't, and he knew he wasn't, then he was a liar. And not only was he a liar, but he was willing to die for his lies. 
Worse than that, he would, would have been demonic because he claimed to be the only way to heaven. And if he wasn't, then he has led countless generations of people away from God with his lies. In other words, he's led them away from God into hell. If Jesus was a liar who claimed to be God but knew all the time that he wasn't, if he was a liar, then he wasn't a good man. At all. If he was a liar, nearly 2,000 years would have proved him to be a liar. But the times continue to confirm everything that he said was true. But there's nothing in the Scriptures that would lead us to believe that Jesus was a liar. There's nothing in his life, his actions, or his teachings that would make us doubt his word. Or maybe... Jesus said he was God and he wasn't, but he thought he was. In that case, he would be a lunatic. Kind of like the guy who finished up with his psychiatrist. And the doctor said, you're cured. How do you feel? To which the patient responded, terrible. When I came in here, I was Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor of France. Now I am a nobody. Again, C.S. Lewis said that making the statement that you were God in a society as fiercely monotheistic as the Jews were would be the same as claiming you were a fried egg. There doesn't appear to be any evidence in Jesus' life or teachings that he was a lunatic. No other delusions. He doesn't behave like a madman. As a matter of fact, the folks of Jesus' day thought he made more sense than anybody they'd ever heard. And the great theologian Sherlock Holmes said, When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And so if Jesus isn't a liar and he isn't a lunatic, then the only other answer is, is that he is exactly who he claimed to be, and that is Lord, God, the way, the truth, and the life. And if that is who he is, then we need to examine what that means in our lives. And again, C.S. Lewis said, you can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense that his being, that about his being just a great human being. He has not left that open to us. John chapter 1, verse 1, again, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who Himself is God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, who has made Him known. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus talking to Philip, the disciple, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul's making a case for the Godhood of Jesus. He says, 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That's the resurrection, folks. So that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Jesus is God. He reveals God to us in human form, but that does, does not diminish His deity in any way. Jesus is revealed in this passage as Creator, the Head of the Church, the Savior of the world. All those ex- expressions of the fact that He is God. <laughs> and so, we need to make sure that we know the real Jesus We need to show the real Jesus. It's not about making Jesus more palatable to those who don't believe in Him or see Him differently than the Scriptures portray. It's about living and sharing the truth of who Jesus is. He is God. He is life. He is truth. He is our sinless Savior. Amen? That is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that the enemy of our souls is a liar. The scripture says he's the father of lies. When he speaks lies, he speaks his native language. And he has spoken a lot of lies into our culture about who Jesus is. A permissive parents that just, you know, lets stuff slide. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry, I didn't really mean it. Hmm. Or this cosmic waiter, someone who's supposed to wait on us and meet all our needs. And then leave us alone otherwise. We'll call you when we need you. Hmm. or we see him as someone who committed sin just like we all have (laughs) which would disqualify him from being the perfect final sacrifice oh but Jesus we're so glad and the scripture makes it clear you never committed sin you were the are the spotless Lamb of God. You are the truth. You live the truth. You embodied the truth. You spoke the truth. And you are God. I don't know. I've always been amazed when I think about Jesus being in the womb for nine months, being born of a woman, 
How do you fit God in the package of a baby? I don't know. How do you fit God in the package of a full-grown man? I don't know, but I know, Jesus, that you are fully man, but you're fully God. You are God. And thank you that the Scripture gives us, Jesus, a clear picture of who you really are. And may we be confident of that. And may we know those things in our heart. And when we have opportunity, may we share the real Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, with the world around us, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, whoever you bring across our path, those we have an opportunity to engage with about spiritual things and about Jesus Christ and why He came and who He really was and what He was really like. And thank you for the picture you give us in Scripture so that we can know Jesus through the Word and through His presence in our lives and hearts. So thank you today for the real Jesus. Oh, may we love, may we serve, may we honor Him with our lives. And Father, we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.